Chapter Eleven of Ruth Erskine's Son by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Plans for a Purpose. The Burnhams were still seated at their dinner table, although Mrs. Erskine Burnham had just remarked that the evening was too lovely to spend in eating. Let us take a walk on the porch in the moonlight the minute we are through dinner, she said to her husband. Apparently she paid no heed to the slight dry cough which came so frequently from Erskine that his mother's face took on a shade of anxiety. Erskine's coughs had been his mother's chief anxiety concerning him through the years. He had never been able to tamper with them, but his wife laughed at her fears and frankly told her that Erskine was too old now to be coddled. To all outward appearances, the Burnham dining-room was exhibiting a perfect home scene. The day had been balmy, with a hint of summer in the air, and although the evening was cool enough for a bright fire in the grate, the mantle above it had been banked with violets, whose sweet spring breath pervaded the air. To Erskine Burnham, who had been all day in the rush and roar of the great city, the lovely room with its flower-laden air, and its daintily appointed dinner-table, with the two ladies seated thereat in careful toilets, formed a picture of complete and restful home-life. He glanced from wife to mother, with eyes of approval, and spoke joyously. "'I don't suppose you two can fully appreciate what it is to me to get home to you after a stuffy, snarly day in town.' I sit in the car sometimes with closed eyes after a day of turmoil to picture how it will all look. But the reality always exceeds my imagination. His wife laughed gaily. It is because you come home hungry, she said. You want your dinner and you like the odor of it and make believe that it is sentiment and violets. In reality it is roast beef and jelly that charm you. He echoed her laugh. He thought her gay spirits were charming. The roast beef helps undoubtedly, he said, though it was violets I noticed first to-night. Aren't they lovely? Did you arrange them, Irene? Hasn't it been a perfect day? Too pleasant for staying indoors patiently. I hope you have both been out a great deal. Oh, it is Friday, isn't it? Then you have, Mamma, of course. What have you been about, Irene? I went to the lake this morning with the Bensons, and we spent an hour or more with the Langhams. They are here for a month. It is lovely out there, Erskine, and there are some charming cottages for rent, two simply ideal ones, either of which would suit us. Darling little bird's nests of cottages, not a great staring room in one of them. I wish we could go there for the summer. Erskine laughed indulgently, but at the same time shook his head. Too far away, dear, I couldn't get out there at night until seven or later. Besides, you wouldn't find it so pleasant as you fancy. Life in one of those bird's nest cottages is ideal only on paper. Nothing could be pleasanter, I am sure, than our own home, and it is a delightful drive to the lake whenever we want to go there. So the Langhams are down. Oh, yes, and came to lunch with me. You should see Harry. He has shaved his mustache, and it changes his face so that I hardly knew him. Oh, Harry is here, is he? His face could bear changing. What did you think of him, Mamma? He is the young man of whom I wrote you, who went over on the same steamer that I did last spring. Before Mrs. Burnham could reply, his wife's voice chimed in. She didn't meet him. 
I went off with a rush this morning. I heard through the mail that the Langhams were down, and I was in such a hurry to see Nettie that I thought of nothing else. I ran away, don't you think? Never said where I was going or anything, and then came back to luncheon so late that I supposed, of course, mother had lunched long before and was lying down, so I wouldn't have her disturbed. And don't you think she had waited and so lost her luncheon altogether? Erskine laughed genially and waited to hear his mother say that of course it was of no consequence, but she did not speak. The cheerful voice of his wife went on. Nettie Langham has the sweetest little home, Erskine. You should see it. You could never say again that cottages were only nice on paper. I'm sure I long to prove to you how perfectly charming one could be. And we have such a host of pretty things that would fit into it. Will Langham says he saves ten minutes night and morning by being at that end of the town instead of this. Erskine chose to ignore the cottage. You had an afternoon of calls, had you not? I met the Emersons and the Stewarts downtown, and both spoke of having been here. Oh, yes, they were here with the Needham girls, and Mrs. Easton and her daughter Faye were here. We met them in New York, you know. And, oh, don't you think, Mrs. Janeway's niece that we used to hear so much about called this afternoon with a letter of introduction from Mrs. Janeway. She is lovely, Erskine. I was prepared to dislike her because we heard such perfection of her. But really she is charming. And she is going to be at one of the lake cottages for several weeks. That is another reason for our being out there, you see. She seemed bent on holding his attention, but Erskine turned to his mother with a question. Mama, don't you think Mrs. Stewart is looking ill? I was shocked at the change in her. Isn't it marked, or is it because I haven't seen her lately? I did not see her today, my son. I did not even know she had been here. Mrs. Erskine Burnham pretended to frown at her husband. What a stupid boy you can be when you choose, she said. How many times must I tell you that I thought your mother was resting this afternoon and did not disturb her with callers? I am sure the Stuarts are not such infrequent guests that one must make a special effort to meet them. I'll tell you some other people who were here. The Hemingways, don't you think? The last time we saw them was just as we were leaving Paris. They came back only last month, and Mrs. Hemingway says she is already homesick for Paris. That is the worst of living abroad for a time. One is never afterward quite satisfied with this country. Mama, said Erskine, do I understand that you have not been out today, Friday though it is? Aren't you feeling well? There was a tender solicitude in his tones, but his mother's voice was cold. Quite well, Erskine. May I give you some coffee? This he declined, and almost immediately his wife made a movement to leave the table. She linked her arm at once in her husband's and drew him toward the door. Come out on the porch, Erskine, do. This room is stuffy tonight. One can't breathe in a house with a fire on such charming days as these. Why, of course it's prudent. The air is as mild as it is in midsummer. Don't go to housing yourself up because you have a tiny little cold. It is the best way in the world to make it cling. Dear me, don't I know all about that? Poor Auntie was forever hunting about for drafts and closing doors and windows and putting shawls on herself and everybody else. 
If I had to stay in the house with another invalid of that kind, I should die. They were on the porch by this time. She had overcome Erskine's half-reluctance, and had closed the door behind them. But the window was open, and the mother could distinctly hear the slight dry cough, more frequent now that they were in the open air. She stood irresolute for a moment, then turned and went swiftly up to her own rooms, and closed and locked her door. Then she went hurriedly to the front windows, and drew the curtains close. She had a feeling that she must shut out the outside world very carefully. But she had no tears to shed. On the contrary, her eyes were very dry and bright, and seemed almost to burn in their sockets, and two red spots glowed on her cheeks. It was a little more than six months since that October evening when Erskine Burnham had brought home his bride, and they had been months of revelation to his mother. During that time she had tried—did any woman ever try harder?—to be, in the true sense of the word, a mother to the daughter-in-law. Her son's appeal during their first moments of privacy had touched her deeply. He had ignored any necessity for a further explanation of his sudden marriage, accepting it as a matter of course that his mother would fully appreciate the simple statement that, however hard it was for all three, it seemed to be the only right solution of their difficulties, and went straight to his point. "'I want you to be a revelation to Irene, Mommy. She knows very little about mother love, having had chiefly to imagine it, with, I fancy, rather poor models on which to build her imaginings. She is singularly alone in the world, and she doesn't make close friends easily.' It is a joy to me to think how a part of her nature that has heretofore been starved and dwarfed will blossom out under your love and care. Then his mother had kissed him, a long, clinging, self-surrendering kiss, while she vowed to her secret soul never to disappoint his hopes. What had she not done and left undone and endured during those six months in order to try to keep that vow? What an impossible vow it was! How utterly Erskine had misunderstood his wife in supposing that she wanted to be loved by his mother, that she wanted anything whatever of his mother except to efface her. By slow degrees Mrs. Burnham was reaching the conclusion that such was the policy of her daughter-in-law. It had come to her as a surprise. Whatever else in her checkered life Ruth Erskine Burnham had been called upon to bear— she had been accustomed to being recognized always as an important force. Mrs. Erskine Burnham had not planned in that way. She did not argue, she never openly combated anything, she simply carried out her own intentions without the slightest regard to the plans or the convenience of others, or at least of one other. From the first of her coming into this hitherto ideal home, she had assumed that her mother-in-law was a feeble old woman, on whom the claims of society were irksome, and the ordering of her home and servants a bore. At first Ruth, with her utterly different experience from which to judge, did not understand the situation. When her new daughter assured her that it was too windy or too damp, or too chilly or too warm for her to expose herself, she laughed amusedly and explained that she was in excellent health, and was accustomed to going out in all weather. When callers came and went without her being notified, she attributed it at first to forgetfulness on the part of a bride, or to her ignorance of the customs of the neighborhood. 
then to her over-solicitude for an older woman's comfort, then to carelessness pure and simple, and finally, by closely contested steps, to the conviction that it was a deeply laid, steadily carried out plan for a purpose. This day, at the close of which she had locked herself into her room, and vainly tried to shut out the sounds of laughter on the porch below, had given her abundant proof of the truth of this conviction. It was Friday, the day which, ever since Erskine was graduated and they were permanently settled in their home, she had devoted to making a round of calls upon people who had been long ill, or who for any special reason needed special thought. She took one or other of them for a drive, she did errands for certain others, she carried flowers and fruit and reading matter to such as would enjoy them. In short, she gave herself and her carriage and horses in any way that could best meet the interests of those set apart. So much a feature of their life had this morning program become, that Erskine was in the habit of referring to it much as he did to Sunday. "'We must not plan for guests at luncheon on Fridays, Irene. Mamma is much too tired for social functions after her strenuous mornings.' We could not have the carriage for that day, dear. It is Friday, you remember. Numberless times since the advent of the new member of the family had such reference to the special custom been made. The mother's eyes being now opened, she recalled instance after instance in which there had been in progress some pet scheme for Friday that would interfere with her disposal of it. More than once she had tried to enter a protest— had urged that she could wait until another day, or she could order a carriage from the livery for that time, but Erskine's negative had been prompt and emphatic. "'No, indeed, Mamma. we don't want you to do anything of the kind. We are interested in the Friday program, too, remember. I consider it almost in the light of a trust. Why, the very horses would be hurt, Irene, if they were not allowed to go their Friday rounds, carrying roses and jellies and balm. Nothing not absolutely necessary, Mommy, must be permitted to interfere with that. Yet, on that Friday morning, when Mrs. Burnham, having studied the barometer in the sky, had sent word to an especially delicate invalid that she believed she could safely take a drive, and had come down at the appointed hour dressed for driving, with a couch pillow in hand and an extra wrap over her arm, Ellen had met her at the foot of the stairs with a flushed face and eyes that had dropped their glance to the floor for very shame, as she said, "'The carriage has gone, ma'am. I was coming to ask you if I should phone for another right away.' "'Gone!' echoed her mistress, standing still on the third step and staring at the girl. "'What do you mean, Ellen? Gone where?' "'To the station, ma'am.' Jones said Mrs. Erskine had ordered him to take her there to meet a friend. Oh, said Mrs. Burnham, reaching for her watch, some guest just heard from who must be met, I presume. Then they will be back very soon, of course. Again the maid's indignant eyes drooped, as though unwilling to see her mistress's discomfiture, as she hurried her story. I guess not, ma'am. She ordered luncheon to be late not earlier than two or half past, and said there would be company, two anyway, perhaps more. Will I phone for a carriage, ma'am? End of chapter 11